Good morning, Lindsley Avenue, past, present, and future. It's good to see everyone gathered together today. If you've come back for homecoming, we're really glad you're here. Uh, if you're visiting, maybe even for the first time, we're glad you're here. And we hope you will come back and join us again in the opportunity that you have. Uh, I'm very honored to be standing in this position this morning that Laws has stood in many years before and so many other capable people who have been here at Lindsay Avenue over the years making a difference in the lives of other people. When we were thinking about uh, homecoming, uh, my thoughts went, and my wife has said many times she doesn't know how my brain seems to work, but my thoughts went to the idea of going home. We've come home back to Lindsay Avenue. And one of the reasons we do that, one of the reasons we gather together as a family of God's people is because we all really want to be going home. And when we think about going home, there really are only two alternatives. And you can see them here, hell and heaven. I've always been disturbed because people will say heaven and hell but that always ends up on the place I really don't want to think about and don't want to dwell on. So we're going to start with hell and then look at heaven. What we're going to do is simply look at these two possible destinations. These are the only places that we can possibly go, hell or heaven. And let's see what the text, see what God has said about these two locations, and then ask ourselves what will determine where we go when we get home. So with hell, there are three different words that are translated hell in the King James Bible. If you use the King James Bible, you can certainly find out what God wants from you. But there are going to be times you may not be actually understanding what was originally intended quite as well. Because in this example with the word hell in English, three different original words are, have been translated as hell in the King James. One of those words is tataros. Tataros. This is the place reserved for the angels who rebelled against God. And that word is used in 2 Peter chapter 2. Since it's reserved for the angels that had rebelled against God, it really is of no further concern to us. But instead of some place set aside for the angels, King James translates that as hell. And you might think that's the word that we're thinking of in all these other locations. Hades is another word, original word, that is also translated hell in the King James. Hades is the intermediate abode of the dead, awaiting judgment. The King James, as I say, translates that as hell. And then you have Gehenna, Gehenna from the Valley of Hinnom. This is described as the lake of fire, the place of eternal punishment after the resurrection. This really is hell in our usual way of thinking. So when you see the word hell, it always is a good idea to try to figure out what word is really there in the original. So let's talk about Hades for just a couple of minutes. Hades is the Greek, Sheol is in the Hebrew, the Old Testament. Both are often called waiting rooms, waiting rooms, because this is where we go when we die. It is not our final abode. So it is a waiting room awaiting our final destination. According to Revelation chapter 20, those in Hades, these waiting rooms, will yet stand before the great white throne judgment. Hades will then be terminated at this time. Once we all have left Hades, the waiting room, and gone to our final destination, there's no need for a Hades anymore. The 
this great unseen realm. Those with a judgment of condemnation will go into Gehenna, the word hell. Hades occurs 11 times in the New Testament, and they're translated as hell in all these different locations in the King James. Matthew 11:23 shall be brought down to hell. Really should be Hades, the waiting room, the unseen place. Matthew 16, 18, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church that Jesus will be establishing. Well, it's not talking about hell where the devil and his angels is the common viewpoint is going to somehow be trying to fight against the church. It's the unseen realm. Death is not going to prevail against the coming of God's kingdom. And so on. All of these different places in the New Testament are translated hell, but they are the word Hades, the unseen waiting room where everyone will go once we die. The most detail about Hades we are willing to grant an assumption or two is in Luke 16 and the parable of the story of the rich man and Lazarus. I think we probably have all heard this before. Lazarus died. The angels take him to uh, Abraham's bosom. Uh, the rich man died and goes to Hades, the text tells us, and is in great torment, great torment. He obviously is fully conscious of his surroundings. He's feeling the torment. He's aware of Abraham across this gulf, as Abraham tells him, and really is aware, too, of having known Lazarus in the past and knowing that his brothers are still alive. It is a place of consciousness rather than some sort of lights out, unaware of anything that's going on around us. The rich man pleads for a drop of water. Please send Lazarus that he may dip his finger in, in water and give a drop of water on my tongue because of the torment in which the rich man had found himself. You can also see the happy condition of Lazarus over there in the bosom of Abraham, but he could not leave. So this pitiful rich man had all of his faculties, all of his sensibilities, and was indeed experiencing ongoing torment in the waiting room. So in that sense, this waiting room is not so much everybody milling together where no one really knows where you're going to go. Judgments is still to come, more of a pronouncing of sentence or the result, but where we're going to go is already decided the moment we leave the earth. So is this only a parable? Well, compared to the other parables of Jesus, he uses names. He doesn't do that in any of the other parables. If you go looking in the other parables of Jesus that are recorded uh, from his life, then you don't find any other names. So it's certainly very unusual. There's this fixed gulf that's described between the two groups. One comforted on one side of the gulf and one tormented. I don't know for sure exactly what to make of this story of the rich man and Lazarus. How much does it really tell us about what is going to occur the moment we leave here and go there? I don't know. If there's any actual fact here, not simply a parable, right? Many times parables we think of as just a story. Whatever fact underlies it, this, it certainly paints a picture of one place I don't want to go. I'm going to go to Hades. I'm going to go to that waiting room, but I want to be on the side of that gulf with Abraham, not on the side of the gulf with the rich man. On the other hand, when we're talking about the real word for hell, Gehenna, the lake of fire, it occurs 12 times. This word occurs 12 times in the New Testament, 11 of them by Jesus himself. So as we as a culture have turned away from wanting to talk about condemnation, 
away from wanting to talk about punishment because after all, God is love and Jesus is love and we just need to love everybody and not try to make people feel uncomfortable. We need to remember that of the 12 times the word, the true word L occurs in the New Testament, 11 of them were on the lips of Jesus. And you can see uh, Matthew 5, being in the danger of hellfire. Matthew 5 again, the whole body shall be cast into hell. That's the lake of fire. That's the place none of us want to go coming out of that waiting room of Hades. And so on. The only place it's mentioned that's not on the lips of Jesus is in the book of James and talking about the tongue, control of the tongue, being inflamed, as it were, by the final destruction of hell. So during the Old Testament times, one of the reasons this word Gehenna became associated with hell, the place of eternal torment, children were offered to the false god Molech in the valley of Hinnom, one of the valleys surrounding Jerusalem. These children were burned alive on the heated bronze statue of this God as an offering to invoke the blessings or to postpone uh, problems or, or punishment coming from the God. One of the most horrific things that I can possibly imagine. And in God's eyes, one of the most horrific things. That's one of the reasons I think it's so eye-opening to know that the place where that happened is the word God chose to use in the New Testament for hell. And the Jewish people had also viewed it as hell. Jews later used this valley to dispose of their garbage. It was a dump. It was an early landfill. It was a dump. It was a place no one wanted to go, as well as the bodies of dead animals and unburied criminals were often thrown into the valley. To consume all this so that it didn't just overwhelm the city of Jerusalem, so that some of it could be quenched out of fire and was kept burning all the time. And of course, as decomposition sets in, there were all sorts of worms and other nasties in this valley consuming all of the garbage, refuse, and other things thrown into it. The Jews of Jesus' day certainly had a very vivid picture of what it would mean to be thrown alive into Gehenna. We don't. We don't. We have been hearing for years, many, many times, of love, and, and I, don't get me wrong, I'm not up here trashing love, but we've got to realize that love is a big part of the picture, but condemnation also awaits, Jesus would have said, a large portion of humanity. The way to destruction is wide and broad, and the, the gate to going home to be with God is, is very narrow. Few there are going to be who find it. So we need to make sure we keep this idea of hell aware of in our minds. Uh, look at some of the verses from the New Testament where hell is being talked about. This one is Mark 9, 42, 43. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him or her that a great millstone were hung about his neck and he would be thrown into the sea and just sink straight to the bottom. A better outcome than to have caused one of these little ones to believe in Jesus to sin. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter into life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. Now listen, if you ever have thought of actually literally doing that, please call me. I think we can talk about that. So I always say that because you don't want some young person or child or someone in a moment of, of panic to do something. But the point is, anything that happens to you in this life does not compare to what this outcome will be. So that is to be avoided. 
activities that lead us in that direction should be refrained from because you don't want to go to hell to unquenchable fire. Look at some statements of the early Christians. I like doing this sometimes as well. What did some of the early Christians in the second and third century say about hell? What did they say about heaven? We'll see some of those in a moment. This is Justin Martyr, one of my famous early Christians. He's the reason you talk about people that die for their faith as martyrs. He is Justin the Martyr, one of the first ones. And that's how the word got associated with his name. Some are sent to be punished unceasingly into judgment and condemnation of fire. 150 AD, he sounds to me as if he is fully aware of what Jesus had said about that potential destination. Here's another one. An ever-burning Gehenna will burn up the condemned. An ever-burning hell will burn up the condemned. Nor will there be any means by which they can have rest or an end to their torments. Weeping will be useless and prayer ineffectual. You're already in your final destination. Crying out, weeping, and praying is not going to help. Notice this last statement. Too late, they will believe in eternal punishment who would not believe in eternal life. That's Cyprian writing about 250 AD, a man who lost his head because he was a believer in Jesus. So, so many of the people around us don't seem to believe in eternal life, don't want to hear about love, don't want to hear about the gospel. Cyprian's response to that is, well, unfortunately, too late for them, they will believe in eternal punishment who would not believe when they were alive in eternal life. Not a place I want to go. And I really can't imagine anyone really wanting to go there as their final eternal destination. So Hades is the abode of the dead, a waiting room, a place where all go awaiting judgment. We're all going to go there. Hell, in fact, however, is Gehenna, the lake of fire modeled on that valley of Hinnom, just outside of Jerusalem. Not a pleasant place at all. And I had this quote, paraphrase here of Dante, abandon uh, hope all you who enter here. Once you enter hell, prayer and weeping are going to be ineffectual. It's good to avoid it. So what's my other alternative? If I don't ever want to go to hell, if I don't want hell even remotely associated with me, What's the other destination? Well, let's talk about heaven. How do we get there? How do we get to heaven? Is it by doctrinal perfection? I remember the first time I asked this question, I was afraid to ask it because I was afraid there would be somebody in the audience who would say, yes, it can't possibly be by doctrinal perfection. If you think it's by doctrinal perfection, then the question is, how big is the list of the questions on the final exam to go see God? How many things must I understand completely, understand correctly, and give correct answers to? You know, is that what in the, in the picture many people have St. Peter is going to have? He's not so much looking up my name on a list, but he unrolls the final exam. Is it a thousand questions of theology? Do you have to have a perfect score? That's what perfection would mean. If getting to go live with God, if going to heaven is based on doctrinal perfection, that I will give up right now. Because there's just no way that I will ever know every possible correct answer. We had a, a sermon here a couple of weeks ago on the final exam, and I came up with some questions if it was going to be based on knowledge. And 
As a former teacher, I assure you, the teacher can always come up with questions that nobody's ever gonna possibly know the answer to. You may think that's the way every teacher did things in high school, right? But it is not my doctrinal perfection. That is a works-based approach going home to live with God. There are some things we have to know. I mean, what does God require of me? What does God want of me? But it cannot possibly be that we achieve our hope and our realization of our destination, go live with God based on doctrinal perfection. Look at Acts 15, 11. This is the apostle Peter. We believe that through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved. Without the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, we cannot be saved. The only way we are ever going to go home to live with God will be through the grace of God. The grace liberally applied to cover all of our failings and all of our shortcomings. That's where my hope is placed. That's the only hope I have. It is through grace, through faith, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2. Let's look at some passages about heaven. God is there now. That's one reason right there we could end it at this point and say, that's where we want to go because I want to go live with God. Psalm 11, 4, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold and his eyelids examine the children of men. The Lord's in his holy temple in heaven. That's where I live. Ecclesiastes 5, 2, the preacher says, Do not be rash with your mouth. And do not let your heart be hasty to say a word before God. Why? For God is in heaven. You are on the earth. I think most of us need to remember that sometimes. God's in heaven and I'm here on the earth. Therefore, he says, let your words be few. Do not run off at the mouth. That's what my mom used to say. Do not run off at the mouth. Choose our words carefully because God is in heaven. I am on the earth. My hope is to no longer be on the earth, but to go be with God in heaven. Matthew 25, 34, this picture Jesus is given of the day of judgment. All the people gathered before the judge. Then the king shall say to those on his right hand, Come, blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. God has prepared our final destination before anything was ever created. What's it going to be like? I have no idea, but it's been waiting for you and waiting for me before Adam and Eve were even put on the earth for their first breath. It's a reward like no other, Matthew 5, 11 and 12. Blessed are you, Jesus says, when men shall revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my name's sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad for your reward in heaven is great. There's a couple of things to note in that statement of Jesus. Blessed are you when men say things against you. Do you see that word? Falsely. There's a difference when people revile and persecute us when it's correct, when it's true, because we have not been living for God and we have not been living the way we should. We're not praised when we suffer because of evil doing, Peter would say over in 1 Peter. But when they say things against us falsely because we are trying to live for God, when society cuts us out of its interactions because we 
follow God and we live for him each and every day. When things like that happen, we should rejoice because even though the reward is not great here and now, the reward is great, as Jesus said, in heaven. Here's the passage Tommy read for us a couple of minutes ago. Thank you, Tommy. Peter, at the start of 1 Peter chapter 1, says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we need to say that more often. The Jewish people start out with, Blessed be the Lord, all the time. But we're going to try to have a field trip over to Congregation Michael. We're studying Judaism on Wednesday nights. And we'll hear that phrase a lot. Hear that phrase a lot. Blessed be the Lord. I think we ought to say that more often. And so at the risk of causing some stress, I want all of us to read and say out loud that first phrase. Will you do that with me? We'll just try to go slowly through it. So here we go. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Try saying that a few times this week. Because it's true. God is great. And we are so very, very thankful that he is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Continuing on with what Peter says, and this is a sermon in one little set of verses. According to his great mercy, not rationed mercy, not mercy in small supplies, he has a tremendous amount of mercy. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. You know, that stress, that conflict sometimes in people's minds, about, am I saving myself or is God saving me? When we get to the final statements of this uh, sermon here in just a few minutes, I'm going to encourage anyone who is not yet a member of God's family to repent, to change their life from wrong to right, to confess that we are all sinners, and to be buried in water right behind this curtain, to be baptized. But notice, Peter doesn't say that we caused ourselves to be born again to a living hope. And he is speaking to people who had been immersed in water. God caused us to be born again to a living hope. When we were immersed, God did. It is God's work when we are immersed. God caused us to be born again to a living hope. How? By what power did God cause us to be born again to a living hope? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It is only by his resurrection, his coming back to life, having paid the price for all of our sins, that we have any of this hope that we have here this morning. And we have been born again to a living hope for what? To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. And that inheritance is kept in heaven for us. Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. That place has been prepared, it's been worked on, and it's being kept in heaven. That reward is there waiting for us for God. This place we are going to is a house not made with hands, 2 Corinthians 5. For we know that if this, if this tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. I imagine some of us may have grunted or groaned getting up this morning. Now, it used to be as a young person, you could jump right out of bed and be immediately just running around, all sorts of stuff. Sometimes I, I remind, remember the Bugs Bunny cartoon. You remember seeing it where he just kind of slithers out of bed? You know, sometimes that seems like me. I just kind of want to, mm. we get older. 
It's not as easy. This tent is decaying. I used to have hair. I don't know where it went. People love to find a picture of me where I had hair. Like, this was Gene. Can you believe it? We change. We grow older. We slowly start, if you will, fading from the glory of our youth, right? The glory of our youth. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter because we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, a new body waiting for us where God is. That's where I want to go. We are citizens of that kingdom in heaven. We have a citizenship here. In Philippians 1, Paul makes it very clear that we as God's family need to be the first to help our neighbors. We need to be the first when there's a problem in our neighborhoods. That's really the point of Philippians 1, chapter 1, verse 27. We need to be as citizens to live, uh, live our lives here so that we can bring glory to the name of Jesus in the here and now. Over in chapter 3, we need to remember that our real important citizenship is not here. As much as it is important to make sure justice is established in the gate, to help our, our friends and our neighbors to be involved in our community, don't lose sight of the fact that as Paul says here in Philippians 3, our citizenship is in heaven. We're citizens of a kingdom that's not of this world. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Here and now is really important, but not at the expense of the hereafter. What's it going to be like? Revelation 22, 4 and 5. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. Night will be no more. They will need no lamp of light or sun for the Lord God will be their light. How do you describe something that you can't really describe? You try. You talk about walls made of, of jewels. You talk about streets made of gold. I don't expect literal streets made of gold in heaven. It's going to be better than literal streets of gold would be. You say, imagine the best thing you possibly can imagine. It's going to be better than that. And the primary reason it will be better than that is right here. God is Let's talk about a couple of quotes real quickly from some early Christians about heaven. Justin Martyr again. I told you he was one of my favorites. Some are sent to be punished unceasingly into judgment and condemnation of fire. We heard that earlier. Others will exist in immortality with freedom from suffering, freedom from corruption, and freedom from grief. There are a lot of people that are no longer with us who were just a couple of years ago. Some because of the pandemic. Some because of the natural change that occurs in people living, people dying. We won't be facing grief anymore. I very, very much agree with this statement and share that hope of Justin from 150 AD. Here's Irenaeus. Those who believe in him will be incorruptible and will not be subject to suffering. They will receive the kingdom of heaven, writing in France, 180 AD. Heaven is where God's people have always wanted to go. As long as we keep it in front of us, don't lose sight of it. Don't let the, the haze 
of the events of this world, like a fog, hide it from our sons. So heaven, don't you want to go home? There's an old spiritual song, Going to Live with God. I used to love singing that. I'm going to live with God. And some of the verses, I want to see my mother, you know, all these different things. I want to go because I want to go live with God. I don't want to have any grief anymore. I don't want to have any suffering anymore. I don't want to have any worries or concerns because God will be my life. Never have to be afraid or sorrowful ever again. If we are members of God's family, then we are going home to live with God. We are if we focus on living for God instead of living for ourselves. You know, I repeat myself a lot because it's such a very important thing to remember. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. Who am I going to live for today? If I'm a member of God's family, it should not be for me. I shouldn't wake up thinking, what things does Gene want to do today? It ought to be, what things can I do to serve God today and to serve my neighbor? Who am I living for? Does that describe you? Does it describe me? If you looking, if looking back over the past week, have you been living for yourself? Or have you been living for God? Living for ourselves in a way to lose sight of where we want to go. So, I want to ask you if that describes you. Don't let it describe you a moment longer. As Evan comes up and leads our invitation song, if there's anything we can help you with, please, please take advantage of this opportunity right now as we stand.